And welcome to Movie Victory. Yeah, I don't I don't know if we should play that song. I mean, there's that whole lawsuit with Huey Lewis when um, his song was stolen for that that exact copy of that song was for like the first back to no, it was the Power I don't think, of Love. Power of love. I don't back, think we can get in trouble for that. I'm just saying, like, he's probably sensitive about that song being used at all at this point. It was, was it Ghostbusters that, I think maybe it was Ghostbusters that stole no, it. Power of then... Love has, uh, oh, you're saying the Ghostbusters theme song stole it from who? Yeah, Huey Lewis. Huey Lewis in the and news. The, right. I wow. mean, what did the news do? I don't, I don't know. But, like, if they you played the instruments. To... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how much creative input they have. I mean, I, I mean, I really don't know. Is Huey Lewis in the news like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, where they're like actually providing a lot of creativity in the group, or is it just, is it more of a band where? I feel like Huey Lewis is the artist, and he brings a lot to the table, which is similar to my passion project, as you know, uh, Huey JPEG and the Blues. We only released one EP, four tracks. And it was called Get Off My Grass. But that was... I was a different person then. So, anyway, Movie Victory. Starring Legette. I feel like you should keep keep that band going, though. I mean... Well, we, I mean, we all live in different parts of the country now. I mean, I guess we could jam over Zoom, but... Yeah. It's tough. Um, but yeah, welcome to Movie Victory. As always, I'm your host, David Victory, and we're the only scientific movie podcast bringing you movies and science at the same time into your ear holes. Um, Which is sure very scientific. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Audio some people waves. just call them ears, but you know, ear holes, it's more concise. It's more accurate. Cause yeah. Because that's what science words. is about. Precision. Yeah, it's about using more words to describe something that's simple yes absolutely absolutely and um did i already introduce you i'm, I'm sorry uh i kind <laughs> of introduced myself with my band name uh i am huey j plague uh this is the blues right and we're talking today about um the chris chris martin classic chris uh, legette <laughs> it's actually chris marker oh uh, chris marker yeah chris martin is the coldplay guy which we actually agreed to never Talk about Coldplay on this. So this, oh, so I was thinking on this, this show time that it was this was the lead singer of Coldplay that did this movie. Oh, well, this no, it's a whole a whole different take. Um, it's very you gotta admit, very close to Chris Martin, Chris Marker. I mean, are you well, sure they're not? It's the same actually. Person? Did you know that Chris Marker is not actually his name? No, but that doesn't surprise me. Uh, well, his, his name is Chris, but you can see on his Wikipedia his full name. In French, is Christian Hippolyte Francois Georges Bouche Villeneuve, and so he just got rid of all that and said, "My name's Chris Marker." That was probably one of his best decisions he's ever made. Yeah, well, that and making this movie. Yeah. Which? What did you think? Let's skip straight to the reviews. <laughs> skip straight to the reviews. How do you feel about this? Just under a half an hour, time travel movie made almost entirely of still photography um is it a movie good question is it... that's what we're here to figure out <laughs> it's definitely a film because they <laughs> use photography film but is it a to... movie is it a movie i mean i enjoyed it for a variety of reasons i guess just to get my overall take on it 
I guess to give you a more play-by-play of my emotional feelings as I was watching it, I watched the English version first, kind of watching it, but I was a little distracted, so I was still, mm-hmm. I was paying attention, and by the end I was like, wait a second, he goes back and it's a loop? I've seen this yeah. movie before. <laughs> and oh, then, really? Um, uh, well, I haven't seen it, but I've seen 12 Monkeys, which is the same story. Uh, yeah. and, so, and, and so it's just like, and, and then I was like, oh, it makes it makes sense to me. And so then I, I spent the rest of the time, and then when I rewatched it, thinking, oh, yeah, it is it is 12 Monkeys. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, 12, obviously, 12 Monkeys uh, is directly uh, adaptate, or reimagining, I guess, of it. Oh, yeah. and I did think that would be like the funniest joke at the end to be like, have you actually seen 12 monkeys? I mean, and be, and act like it's a better film. Very just similar. be like, you gotta, you gotta wait till you yeah, see 12 Yeah, I'm glad monkeys. you're just talking about it and not doing <laughs> yeah, that yeah, joke, because yeah, that would have been I, excruciating. I thought that would be a hysterical joke, just the whole time be like, uh, but 12 monkeys, that's yeah. where it's at. Um, this movie, Jete <laughs> does not have Brad Pitt pretending to be crazy. Uh, yeah, I know, I was thinking, I was like, man, Brad Pitt, that, that part, that's completely different. Yeah, yeah. I mean... I mean, what what can you say? It's it's twenty eight minutes and six seconds. The uh, French version and wow. twenty eight, se- and that's something I'm. I thought I would lead with asking you, is why is the French version another three seconds? I think it's three seconds difference. I don't have them pulled up right I now. I do know that they're, they're, but they're about three seconds apart. I might know the answer to this, because there are slight variations to the French and the English version. Obviously, he did. I believe it's Chris Marker doing the voiceover for both. And, of course, his native tongue is French, but he's obviously fluent in English because, I don't know about you, but I love his narration on the English version. I prefer it. Not just because I speak English, because I like the sound of his voice. And, yeah, the French version not only has different narration, which you can tell in the subtitles, sometimes if you were to play them side by side, just what he's saying when it's translated, is subtly different. And I think that's probably because he has a much better grasp of French. I find the the English version to be much more simplistic in the way he describes things, and I like that better. And I think he purposely made these two different versions with a slight variation on the edit. He, like, wanted both audiences to, to receive it differently. Now, what those three seconds are, I don't know. You know, did he I mean, just that was going to be my follow-up question. It's like, where are the edits? Because, I mean, I watched them in a pretty short period of time. I think I watched the English version one day, the French version the next day. And um, I was not bowled over with differences. I'm not going to dispute that there no. were differences. But um, I'm, a, I was just, where are those three seconds? Yeah, there's only where slight differences in the phrasing of the narration. Oh, and okay. That's, I think the only way to figure that out would be to set up that makes sense yeah, yeah. there's slight variation in the phrasing and the translation yeah that's always going to be true I, i'm yeah. curious if he wrote the did he write the american translation you think for the oh, subtitles yeah. oh yeah he wrote yeah chris marker so he, does everything 100 so percent his so own stuff uh, so he think okay so i'm like why that's interesting that you would have an Ameri- like an english version that's different than a subtitled French version. That's that's all I'm saying. Like, if you're doing both... Well, I don't know like if he's doing things. the subtitles. That's what I'm saying. Right. Okay. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, I doubt he translated the French to English for the subtitles that we read. Which, I mean, arguably, the person who's translating that is not going to be 
as good as good as the the original author, right? Especially if you're fluent in both languages, um, right? So, um, and again, I think Chris Marker just has a be- a better grasp of French, being a native French speaker, so he can be a little bit more precise. Yeah, in absolutely. His wording. You'd be you'd be more articulate in your native language always. I think it actually says here. Chris Marker created unique English and French narration tracks for Le Jeté and prefers that the film be experienced in the language the viewer is more familiar with. The different tracks are not direct translations of each other or synced to the images in exactly the same way. So there's slight variation, and also, of course, if he's doing the narration, there's oh, going to wow. be different kinds of lengths of pauses between what he's saying, and that's why they don't sync perfectly to the images on each one. Now, what, where are those three seconds come and go i think the only way to figure that out would be like to set up two screens next to each other hit play at the exact same time and then see when they get off and be like oh look he held on to this still photo for an extra couple seconds or for whatever reason it seems like such a bizarre way to do it you think that you would have like the film like well actually and then you'd be like all right i recorded no now now that we're talking about it i think that makes a lot of sense because if there are different moments of silence, different pauses between the French and English narration, just because he's doing them on different days or whatever, then it makes sense because there's a slightly longer pause between these two phrases, and he's like, oh, I need to either speed up this photo or slow it down because the next piece of narration shouldn't come until we get to this photo. He's going to have different words that are different lengths when you have yes. the translation that are going to affect the right. pauses. And so, yeah, and that, so that a couple of the sense. photos may have to have been elongated from three seconds to five because he's like, oh, well, we can't go to this photo until I've said this yet, right? It's actually probably pretty impressive that there's only like a three-second difference then. Right, um, right. So anyway, I guess that's my hot take. I had not heard of this film but have seen 12 Monkeys. What's your experience with this film? I have seen 12 Monkeys, but like once, and I honestly don't remember any of it. And I think I may have seen it before knowing this film exists, but didn't know that at the time, obviously. My first memory of this film was I was in my early 20s. Do you remember that guy, Rocco? You remember Rocco? So we knew this guy who was at film school. I'm sorry, I was on mute. Yes, of course, Rocco. And he was in film school at the time. I was not, because I couldn't afford it. And... He, we were either hanging out or he called me or something, and he said, have you heard of this movie, Le Jete? And of course, at the time, I was giving myself a film school by working at a video store or the library and just getting high and watching too many movies. And I was like, yeah, oh my God, it's amazing, right? First of all, he was surprised that I had seen it, even though he was asking. But I guess it was on his film school syllabus. And he said, you know, they show us a lot of movies in classes, and most of us just roll our eyes. And he's like, but I was fucking blown away by this one. I couldn't believe it. But he's also a still photography guy, so of course he liked it. And that's actually the first memory I have of it. I know I had seen it prior to that and been impressed, but the first memory that I have retained is someone asking me about it who was in film school and be like, hey, have you seen this one? And I'd be like, oh yeah, it's great. And I've seen it dozens of times since then. I mean, I've shown it to a lot of people because it's only a half an hour, so it's not much of a time commitment. I've definitely got like gotten high with people and just put it on, and then people are like, what the fuck is this? So, that's my experience with Le Jete. I watch it when I'm high sometimes and like study it, because I think it's great. 
What have your um, exchanges been with your participants that you've lured back to your to your uh, room to watch Lejeune? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, almost unanimous praise. I don't think I've ever shown it to anybody that was like, what the fuck was that? Most people are like, if they say what the fuck was that, it's out of being like, I didn't know anything like this existed. And I think that's speaks to its historical value. I mean, it is a unicorn. There's really nothing like this before or after. And don't you dare say 12 monkeys. <laughs> I mean, there is a, a direct adaptation of it. But um, it's nothing like this. It's a time travel movie told in still images. That idea is so novel. As far as I know, has not been attempted before or since. Uh, and if it has, certainly without this much success oh yeah yes I, I would agree with that i would say it is kind of like i mean it's one of the um first things i think i've done in a photography class is put together a collection of images to tell a story oh um, yeah so, so it's not like i'm sure people have done this i would say that's one of the things that made me really um, um one of the things i got out of the film um was i was just thinking i was like i i should do this i should just put, put right. a collection of my pictures together and just do i think that every over. time yeah I, I'm, I'm just like but it also seems clear to me like given the fact that he has a cast and goes to these different places i mean that's the other thing that's genius about making a still photo movie is you don't need permits to film anywhere because you're just somebody taking a, ca a camera taking pictures in public uh, and so, but when I see this and like people have their little, co like little sci-fi costumes with the weird little spectacles and the weird little sunglasses they have, um, and he's clearly just like using his friends and being like, okay, you guys are from the future. We're going to put a little dot of black tar for your third eye, you know, very, very low budget, this movie. But, uh, it seems very clear to me that he had the story in place and he was like, okay. What photos do I need for this? I really don't think he was winging it by the time he got people together to go to the pier and shoot a bunch of photos. You know, He may not have known which photos he was going to use in the final edit, but it seems clear he knew what he needed pictures of. You know, and, and, and to me, that means he's already written the story. I would love right. if he's more of a Terrence Malick type, but these are just random shots he took. Just fucking winging it. <laughs> yeah, yeah taking, all, just, just taking the long pictures. route. Yeah. And he yeah. just spent five years editing it to, 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 to pick the pictures specifically afterwards. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, Chris Marker really, for instance, Sans Soleil is just a bunch of, it's a bunch of like home movie footage or, or I guess travel document. He just filmed himself traveling in like Japan and Africa and stuff and then cobbled all the footage together and wrote narration over it. So that's one where he kind of took the long road. But this one is, seems much more concise and much more... I love pre-planned pre that idea for photography or not photography for film, but to like take footage and I, I guess I do think about it a lot. I, and one of the things I do really like about the film is that I think it inspires um, creative people. Where you can complain, I don't have the budget to tell my story or my stories. You know, I have this epic I want to get get across, and there's no possible way I can do it. And um, this this film kind of just says. Um, do you see all I have in this? Uh, no, <laughs> right. excu no excuses. And the only thing that he has that I don't have is the um, the music. I don't know who does mm. the music for this film, but it really adds a lot. And I do think that's yes. probably one thing that anybody else trying to do this, unless they get somebody who's going to score score mm -hmm. their their movie, 
um, it's not really gonna at all achieve any because I do think you need the music yeah some of the music is certainly just class like straight up classical pre already existing recordings I think okay. I really don't think he had a symphony that he was you know he didn't have access to that I mean the sound production's pretty minimal I mean that's one of the things I like about it is a lot of it's pretty quiet when there's not music and there's really really subtle sound design like when the guy is being put under by the the people underground all you hear is like a lot of and like a lot of very quiet whispering well we haven't talked about the story at all yet should we backtrack and do that as far as the it says a guy named trevor duncan did the music for this i mean it the music definitely adds a lot of gravity to the movie that might not otherwise be there yeah if you want to do a synopsis of the story go for it Let's see. The quickest one I can think of is uh, it opens with a kid on the pier. Le jete means the pier. And the kid sees a man die. And it's a very strong memory in his mind. Shortly after that, there's an apocalypse. Paris is blown up. And people live underground. And they're using these, like, underground prisoners doing some sort of psychic experiments on them to send them through time using their dreams. And so they pick this guy, the main character, because he has very strong visual memories or imaginations. And they drug him in some way. They send him deep into his subconscious, and they somehow send him through time. And his body appears before the apocalypse. But all he really does is goes on dates with this woman. He's not really helping the people in the future. All they know is that it's working, and he is, in fact, somehow transporting his consciousness back uh, to the past. But all he's really doing is hanging out with this woman and going on nice dates. And so it's also a love story. Eventually, they bring him back to his body, and they try to send him to the future. And he meets people from the future, and they give him... This is a very long synopsis. One of the parts of the movie I love is when he, he's talking to the people from the future and he goes, you know, if you already exist, that means humanity doesn't die. So you might as well give me the source of what saves us. And they're like, well, we kind of can't deny that. You're kind of right. And they give him some sort of power bank to take back with him. He gets that and then the men who were using him to send him through time are just going to murder him. They're going to execute him because he was he was a guinea pig. They're done with him now. He served his purpose. And then the people from the future show up and they're like, listen, we understand now that you are, in fact, the one that saved us or we saved ourselves by giving you this power source. Do you want to come to the future and hang out? Because they're going to kill you. And he goes, no, 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 thanks. I want to go to the past and be with this woman I love. And he goes to the past He goes to the pier to meet her, and then the men from underground have also traveled back, and they murder him, and himself as a child sees himself get murdered. So it's a loop. The end. Is that enough? I can't help but just visualizing 12 Monkeys as we talk about it. it. I have almost no memory of 12 Monkeys whatsoever, so I don't know. Uh, I feel like I watched 12 Monkeys at the right time when I was like getting into films and I like wanted to get it I wanted to understand it and so um, Bruce Willis does a 
really interesting performance. Um, a very uneven actor, Bruce Willis, by mm-hmm. all measures. But uh, Twelve Monkeys, he, the character is play. He plays kind of an alien-like character. Um, because he's been living underground the whole time. And so mm-hmm. I do think about that with even the picture portrayal of this. It's like he he almost fits in too well. I'm like, I'm like, should he really be this acclimated to, to people? Um, it does. And that and I guess you do see his looking of overwhelmed in the world with all the shots real cats I, I guess that uh-huh. always sticks up to me it's like yeah it's like real like it has real everything when he first gets up yeah, there yeah. which a lot of the storytelling is done that way it's like we take uh we get the picture of of whatever the protagonist is looking at as a way to mm-hmm. kind of get the emotions of what the characters are supposed to be feeling um because yeah you get the pictures of them and they're just not happy not sad most of the time they're just making normal faces and so we're getting all of the quote-unquote acting through the images that he puts before after the pictures Mm -hmm. of their faces and um yeah the order of the photo montage really builds but yeah i guess you're right a lot of it is from the main character's pov right unless it's a photo of him right it seems to be what he's looking at being described by a narrator yeah but yeah um what else? What else about this movie? I feel like that's like such a way to like end the conversation to be like, what else? It's like we've, we've barely, uh-huh. we we barely have yeah. talked about it. The worst question. Talked about it. So what else is there? Is there anything? All right, it's <laughs> over. <laughs> yeah. I've made this joke on dates before where there's a lull in the conversation. Then I go, what do you want to talk about now? And then I'll segue to be like, that's the worst question ever, isn't it? And then yeah. I'll usually sort of. Yeah. Anyway. Speaking of cats, Chris Marker, definitely a cat guy. He has other movies where cats are very prominent. He made a movie called A Grin Without a Cat. He's a real animal lover, this guy. Well, that cat looked very loving in the real cat. I was just like, oh, that looks like a nice cat. But I watched a really, I don't know if you watched this or not, but there's a, on the Criterion channel, under the collection for this film, it has maybe a nine-minute, eight- or nine-minute essay, really, where this guy argues how it's a remake of Vertigo. Um, oh, well, it's actually well known that Vertigo is Chris Marker's favorite film of all time. And he makes references to it throughout his career. He even made a movie that's on the channel called, uh, I think it's Junkopia or Junk, Junk, Junkatopia or something. And he, he went to San Francisco and he goes to a lot of the locations where Vertigo is filmed. But it's just like, full of trash and it's very different from when Vertigo was filmed because he's doing it in whatever it was, the 70s or 80s. There's even a reference to Vertigo in Le Jete where they go and they see the tree, the rings of the trunks of the tree. So yeah, he, in addition to usually having cats in his films at some point, he also tends to make a reference to Vertigo in many of his movies. Yeah, well, it's, well, it's an interesting... Um take on it i would say it's worth watching it's not very long um but he he goes into the similarities between this film and um vertigo and also also tries to convince you of the idea that it's about um filmmaking too and he points out like who some of the uh actors if you can call them that in the the movie are like one of them is a film person i guess or 
one of the doctors is, and then it's kind of an interesting, interesting idea. I guess I, I segue that into what did you think the film was about, if anything? Is it? I mean, well, is it for about me, time traveling? Is this a prediction about what's going to happen? Is this a movie threatening um, Paris? You think? No. Uh, for me, like a lot of Chris Marker's stuff. It's a film about memory and how powerful memory can be in our daily life. And of course, this one, it's taken to the nth degree where they're using memory to send someone back physically back through time. So I think the movie's really about consciousness and humanity's, I want to say, like desire to stay conscious. I mean, there's been an apocalypse, there are these people underground, they're sending people into the past so that they don't die. To some extent, it's about survival. And what is survival other than not die, staying conscious, uh, no matter how miserable your setting may be, there's still the desire to remain alive, uh, which is to remain conscious. So to me, it's about the power of memory, but not in that sort of romanticized, nostalgic way, although there's that too, because he's obviously having this romance with the woman from the past, and he's nostalgic for this time when he was a boy and now he's being sent back as an adult and has fallen in love with this woman. I mean, it's, a lot, it's about a lot of things, but maybe on the most surface element, I think it's about memory and the sort of romance that memory can provide in one's you know, daily conscious experience. So to me, that's what I think about a lot when watching it. I mean, I also learn a lot of stuff about movie making and about narrative structure and how certain images tied to certain narration can really drive a story. So there's that kind of stuff too. But my short answer is it's about memory, it's about consciousness, it's about love being the reason that you want to stay conscious and the hope that that happens. Yeah, I could ramble on, but that's that's my answer. So at the heart of it, you think it's, a, it's kind of a love story about love kind of being the meaning of existence that what mm -hmm. drives you to do anything? Yeah, I think so. I think it's the... I mean, like, like, my favorite part of the movie, which I joked about a few minutes ago, is, like, they send this guy back to save the human race, and he just goes on dates with this woman. You know, putting it like that, it sounds very silly, but you watch it, and it's beautiful. Actually, speaking of Vertigo, when they go to the, the, muse the Natural History Museum, and they see all these, you know, frozen taxidermied statues of animals, there's a really wonderful... I don't want to call it irony, even, but there's a wonderful nuance that's happening of like he's from the apocalypse you know like you said he's he's impressed by real birds real cats and now he's watching these stiff versions of them in the past and how strange that must be for somebody that came from a world where there are no animals because the apocalypse ha happened so there's that too but i wanted to mention the vertigo thing before getting sidetracked because that music during their date at the natural history museum always makes me think of vertigo I don't know if the composer or what was like told to do a riff on Bernard Herrmann, but for whatever reason, every time I watch Le Jeté, when they go on the date to the, the History Museum, I always think about Vertigo. The music is tonally similar. I don't know what it is. I don't know music theory. Uh, I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it actually did. And um, yeah, the, the scene of the Natural History Museum, um, the 
animals all being frozen in the same way that the world is frozen is kind of what I thought about with that image after at first, you know, just finding like, and this is nothing against the movie, but just like any time, like now, I don't know why, but taxidermy, I mean, I do know why, but like, it just, it's kind of upsetting to see animals like that. And that's not the context of this mm -hmm. film at all. Um, well, it's a little it, uncanny, right? It, it feels yeah. unnatural. It, it yeah. really does. And specifically in that scene where you see all the birds and like the young animals and like the mm -hmm. tigers and the lion, well, the, any of the young animals, but the birds particularly particularly because it looked like tens ten thousand birds there and you're just like oh my god oh yeah yeah um well but i i did think about i was like well why didn't they just go to a zoo and i was like oh it is about seeing the animals being frozen in the same way that time is frozen and that him experiencing mm -hmm. time like it, he's not really experiencing it because he's really in two places at once and he's right. time traveling through a dream and so it's like you know, does he, can he really have any effect in right. this past world that he's living in just in the way that the, the animals are frozen there? And so I did kind of try to make right. that connection. And I was like, they're living in the moment, even though that moment, they have no power to affect change in that moment, I guess. And well, yeah, go ahead. That's interesting. Um, that's because I would argue maybe that's not the case. Okay, so two thoughts to what you just said. One about the taxidermy, I agree it is uncanny, and as we've talked about on other episodes, like I personally am very bothered when there's ever animal abuse or animals being fucked with in movies. I can't, I don't like it. I can't stomach it. Uh, I can watch people die, but animals, and I'm like that crosses the line. But for whatever reason, I'm not sure why taxidermy doesn't bother me. Uh, maybe because it's like a craft, it's like an art unto itself, and it must. I mean. I don't know how that shit works. I mean, I know they have to, like, you know, whatever it is, put it, stuff it with sawdust or something, but it's probably a very delicate art form, albeit a very weird and sort of, you know, macabre one. It's a little, it's a little morbid, for sure. Uh, just, like, not letting something decay is, seems unnatural, right? But uh, one thing I wanted to mention was the strangest thing about that. Like you said, you see all these animals and they're frozen, and there's all sorts of metaphors that you just talked about in relation to time and, and freezing things. But the strangest thing to me is this whole movie is told in still photographs. And yet, when you see the taxidermied animals, they seem more still. Maybe because when you take a picture of a person, they're naturally moving a little bit, but the eye of the lens can catches that freeze frame, but they're still in movement, right? Which is probably, there's no better example than when he takes all the pictures of the woman sleeping. And she moves just a little bit. And he starts, he creates this montage where there is the illusion of movement, right? Uh, but that, yeah, there's something extra uncanny about the taxidermied animals in the History Museum. Because you can tell that they're not moving. Despite the fact that it's a bunch of still images. And that's always a very strange thing to me when I watch it. Um... So that was that was one thought. The other one was, uh, sorry, what was the last thing you said about time or something? I was just saying how they're living in the moment, but they're powerless to affect ah, change. See, that's where I would maybe part ways. I'm not sure if I agree with that because he's obviously actually talking to this woman. He's obviously actually going on dates with this woman. Although he seems to appear and disappear 
based on whether or not he goes back to his body in the future, he's still affecting her. He's still having conversations with her, going places with her. I mean, she refers to him as her ghost in a, in a sort of poetic, romantic way. Uh, but that's just because he seems to appear and disappear at whim. Uh, but he's still affecting the past, if only because he's affecting her. And not only that, but they go to the past to murder him. So he obviously, he has a physical body that can be murdered, right? And so that's one of the, th the things that's never really explained, that doesn't need to be explained in the narrative, of like, how is he being put under in the future? And then through dream, through some sort of conscious travel, whatever we want to call it, his physical body is manifesting in the past. I mean, there's no attempt to explain how that works, but he has this sort of like, um, like peripatetic consciousness. He's able to literally, his consciousness is able to travel from one point in time to another, and yet a physical body manifests in both spots. So he is affecting the real world, and he's not like a specter. You know, he does have a physical form, uh, which can be killed. So, I don't know, I mean, that's one of the ambiguities of the story. It's like, well, how the fuck does that work? And it's science fiction, so, it, I mean, you know. I'm talking about how he, how he dies. Like, because he dies at the end of this and he saw it at the beginning, we know that he's all done this all before. So that's what I'm saying. He's not affecting change. And the, and the world... Oh, yeah, it's a loop. Yeah, it's a, it's a loop. So that's, I mean, that's all. Like, he thinks in the moment that he, what he's doing is his choice. Like, he, for all the reasons mm -hmm. you just said. But in reality, mm -hmm. he's done all this before, and he was predestined right. to do it's it. It's predestined. Because we saw it happen... And, or he saw it happen when he was a small boy. I will mm -hmm. say that there is a tiny bit of live video in this of the girl. Yes. Okay. I was just like, when you said it was like, it yeah. looks like live. And I'm like, no, she really is live for like a moment. Oh, no. Yeah. For like, yeah, for like three seconds, right? right? And yeah. then she suddenly blinks. Okay. And it's one of those like, actually, when, when my friend who was in film school asked if I'd seen it, like I think his second question after I was like, yeah, it's great, was... Did you catch the moving footage? And I was like, oh yeah, it's when the girl is sleeping and then she wakes up and blinks. And one of the things that I love about the sound design is during this montage, still photo montage of this woman sleeping, it's just a bunch of still black and white photographs of this woman sleeping, sort of rustling about, leaning side to side, her arm might move, her head might move just a little bit. But the pace of the edits increased just a little bit. At the same time, the sound of birds outside the window, the volume increases until we get to the very sneaky couple seconds of her actual moving film, of her waking up and, and blinking her eyes open, and the sound of the birds reaches a peak and blasts. And then it's like hard cut, audio ends, they go back to the future. And it's one of my favorite sound design moments in the whole movie is like the increase of volume of the birds right as they show the one piece of moving footage. It's brilliant.
harder to tell on this low volume on my laptop. But anyway, the sounds of the birds increase. Around the 50th day, they meet in a museum filled with ageless animals. Even that phrasing, ageless animals. Um, mm -hmm. Well, and the, then the other layer, which I forgot to mention, you kind of brought it up, is this is the photography itself. So it's like we're looking at images, like it's just the layers of images. Because in my mind, mm -hmm. everything in the movie is kind of predestined. So even though like oh, yeah. he feels like he can change, in reality we know, especially since like most people, you'd probably rewatch this if you saw it. Like most people mm -hmm. did when they saw 12 Unless Nothings. you don't get it. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's why you're like, you kind of get it, and you're like, wait a second, but and that's why you rewound it. It's like, how did they set this up? Let me... No, I'm just talking about the layers of the images, and so it's like the whole movie is kind of, it's a, photo, it's a photo because he can't change anything, and it's hmm. actu actually a photo, and then they have mm -hmm. the scene where they're looking at the... Taxidermy. It was just like it's the layers it's, uh, of stillness. It's not just yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. not just frozen in time. Yeah. The timeline itself is frozen, is frozen so. in a way. It's it's distinct. Uh, well, I mean, predestined is the right word, right? Yeah. And that's to me, that's a very annoying idea, right? In terms of whether we're talking about free will or fate or whatever, the idea of predestination bothers me. Right, because it takes away my ability to choose. There's like that determinism thing of no matter what, you may think you're making this choice based on your options, but you necessarily would have picked this one based on, you know, all your years of thoughts that lead it up to that, etc. And that's kind of the rub, not just about the movie, but about life itself, if things are in fact predestined, which we can't really know. But when the people from the future say, listen, they're going to kill you, would you like to come to the future? We're actually very grateful that you saved our ass. And he's like, no, no, I have another request. Just send me back to my favorite point in the past so I can love this woman. And he thinks he's making a choice by subverting their offer to come to the future, right? But if it's predestined, then he would have made that choice no matter what. And obviously when he was a boy and he saw this man himself get shot he already existed at two points in time when he was even a boy so there's also the all the other annoying thing of non-linear time which is the future and the past and the present are all happening at once which is another to me sort of frustrating idea i can accept it i understand what it means but it's annoying to me of like oh shit well then my future's already set a course uh there's nothing i can do about it you know unless we start getting into parallel universes and stuff like that yeah but it is an annoying i guess now that you bring it up but like this whole concept of like everything is a beginning and an ending and time doesn't exist and everything's happened i mean it's like we're reading a kurt vonnegut book um, right well it exists but it all exists at once right and it all affects there's like a Oh, what's the word? Not a, not a pendulum, but a. Um, I can't think of the word. There's like a balance to everything. Like if something happens in the future, it affects the past, and vice versa. You know, and it, so it's there's a paradox of time travel of like, there's always this idea of like, oh, if you go back and change something, it'll change everything in the future. But if predestination exists, that means that you always necessarily went from this point in the future to the past, or vice versa, 
And therefore, you're not changing anything. You're just doing what you're supposed to. It is what it is. It's a tricky, it's a tricky one, right? Yeah, it kind of goes with, like, why time travel doesn't exist and never will exist. You know, it's like the, uh... it's like the Stephen Hawking birthday party. I invited the time travelers to this time right now, and they never came. You know, it's just, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, it's like, if, if time traveling existed, why didn't they show up to his party for the invitation or... You know that whole thing because we are living. Well, he, in the first past. of all, first of all, Hawking is a, a real jokester, and that's a very clever thought experiment joke that he's making. Uh, I don't take that too seriously, but again, no matter what we say at this point, see now if we try to make any definitive statements, we're talking about belief. We're not talking about a thought experiment anymore. By you saying, "Well, time travel doesn't exist," that's a belief. There's no way we can say that for sure one way or the other and I think one of the things that fa has always fascinated me about this film is that there's no time machine he's simply using his own consciousness to do that and of course there are many accounts of people whether they have a near-death experience or a strange dream or deja vu whatever it is there are m uncountable examples not just in history but in recent history the last hundred years of people having premonitions that seem to come true, having strange images and dreams that seem to actually take place months or years later. And so there, when, it, when you're talking about is time all existent, where the past and the future and the present are all happening at once at all times, uh, and can you pierce the veil? I mean, a lot of good science fiction is about this is like, well, do you even need the time machine, right? Or, or is consciousness itself powerful enough that, you know, given the right circumstances, uh, obviously this guy's being sedated, that that's possible. I mean, we're talking about a possibility, not a belief. You know, this is not... There are differences between, like, science and logic and beliefs, though. But, I mean, it's like when you talk about things like that, I think spaghetti monster. It's like, yeah, you can't prove the spaghetti monster doesn't exist. It's still not an argument. Oh, no, I'm not talking about Russell's teapot here. I'm not talking about, oh, there's a teapot in the sky, but you can't prove it exists. That doesn't mean it doesn't. Uh, that's, I'm not sure that's a, a fair analogy. I'm well, talking about... like time travel, the fact that I say it doesn't exist, it's a belief. It's like, well, there's a lot of things that back up that belief. Um, I would say, have you ever read Sam Harris's book, Waking Up with Sam Harris, or anything by Sam Harris? Because he's researched this topic extensively, and I have read uh, his book. Years yeah. ago, but I'm sure he researched it with a bias of an interest to disprove it. Anyway, okay. the reason that I, I, I say I can tell you you have not read his book, then, if that's how you feel. Um, I would just recommend it. I think you would love it. It's, But he's, he's studied, he, he does believe in a lot of what you're talking about, but he qualifies it a little differently so I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah i would you would like he talks waking up with sam harris which i just read this week is all about this about the i the mean concept. it's about consciousness and meditation right yeah but he the way that he defines it is what you're talking about i'll just i'll just give you that much information and okay. just re recommend it yeah it's i mean not, i know that he has been sorry to interrupt i know he has been becoming a neuroscientist for a very long time I actually think that I read, I listened to some of an audiobook of that book when it came out. Yeah, the only reason I was trying to delineate, like, well, making a definitive this does not exist is necessarily a belief, is because I would say that about most things. 
the distinction I was trying to make is we're not just talking about time travel. We're talking about consciousness and how that can function in ways that we don't understand yet. Yeah, and that... That's all. That is what Waking Up with Sam Harris is about, like mm -hmm. specifically, about the idea of consciousness. Because that's kind of how he starts the book, even talking about how uh, consciousness, the fact that it exists, because we all know that we can think, like there's no disputing that, right? Mm -hmm. But there is no scientific evidence to prove consciousness. Like you can't prove it scientifically that that's a real mm -hmm. thing that occurs in your brain. Like, yeah, it's not falsifiable, right? Right. right. So right. that's like the, and that's different. And he makes this comparison. And like some people will say, well, we all don't know the same colors. What I say is red. You might think is a different red. And he's like, that's not sure. at all the same We're, thing. And so. Yeah, that's not a good analogy either. That's just relative experience. Yeah. Right. And so from a scientific method, because I would say, and I won't get into it, but like the, the concept of like near death experience, I mean, you can really scientifically show why those occur and how you can recreate those, even if the person isn't dying, um, to kind of dispute that the, you're actually necessarily dying when that happens. Um, but he does talk about that too. Um, but it, it is because he talks about this different way to tap into consciousness. Um, and he talks about, actually he talks about doing LSD a lot and how that somehow breaks into that level of consciousness in a way. And he kind of recommends do, doing LSD at least like once. And because he's like... Oh, sure. That. I would recommend it too. Yeah, because a lot of people say, in his, in his in way, the way that he describes it, he's like, basically that's the shorthand to meditate. It's like some people can get to that mm -hmm. state through meditation. Like doing the drug is kind of a shorthand to, to get there. Um, to break into that side of your brain because there is so much about consciousness that we don't understand and i would say oh yeah anybody that's experienced a meditator knows that because there's there's mm -hmm. ways that your mind can suddenly become it feels like it can come outside of your body and i've, I've experienced mm -hmm. that too but i'm not gonna but and i think he articulates this well i'm not gonna say that a consciousness exists outside of the body. And and that's where we probably disagree. And I'm not saying that I would be opposed to that if that was true, but, the, but what consciousness is, is an idea that I think is really fascinating. And it is a lot, in a lot of ways, what this movie is talking about. And I would say mm -hmm. that is this person I mean, because it is like, is he really time travel? I mean, I know we know because he dies at the end or whatever, but I mean, he could, this could be fever dream. He could just die there in the future, right? Or like, but how, then there's, how did he see it when he was a boy, right? Well, it, he could have still seen that and then he could be, you know, I'm not going right, to, I'm not right, going right. to, yeah. We, but, we don't need to do the, we don't need to do but, the, the skeptic right, of, I don't, of a fictional cause, movie. Because I'm not. I'm not saying that that's what the movie's suggesting, but I am saying it's it's really questioning what consciousness is, and um, mm -hmm. I think it's a huge topic because I don't think anybody oh, really, yeah. really knows. And um, what do you do? I agree about that little voice in your head that doesn't stop talking. Like, what is that? Did you ever hallucinate um, f friends as a child, which is something that apparently is very common? Richard Dawkins talks Imaginary about friends. Yeah. Talks actually, about that a lot in his book. You know, it's interesting. I never had any imaginary friends uh, as a kid. Um, I did, however, create characters. Not that I would interact with, but that I would be. I would perform as in my, you know, in my head uh, and think like them or, you know, quote unquote. Um, 
But to me, it was never an imaginary friend that was external from me. And I think that's one of the interesting things that you were just, just mentioning is the idea, which I totally understand, that consciousness is like generated by the body or the brain in some way we don't quite understand, right? And you were saying, you know, although my, I may have experienced the sensation of what felt like my consciousness being somewhat outside of my body, which, by the way, is a fairly common experience, uh, albeit an abnormal one. It's one that many people have reported, whether they were on drugs or whatever, or meditating. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the consciousness still didn't come from the body. And then the imagination is just powerful enough to say, what would it feel like if I were, in fact, five feet above where I am now, right? And of course, there's all sorts of mystical experiences of having an astral body and seeing yourself from outside yourself and this sort of thing. But that doesn't negate the idea that consciousness was still generated by this, this physical thing, which is your, your body, your brain, right? All these organs in such a way happen to do this. And one thing that I've fallen back on whenever I do get into these conversations, which is rare, is... Uh, I don't know about consciousness, but I mean, I'm not certain about most things. You know, I'm, I'm very, you know, I'd like to think a healthy amount of skeptical about stuff. Although I'd like to believe a lot of things, because I think it'd be pretty cool if you could time travel through consciousness or whatever. But, and I've certainly had experiences, whether it was on drugs or in dreams or not, where that seems to be the case. Uh, at least that's po a possibility, right? Maybe not by will, maybe it's predestined and it's just going to happen naturally unto itself. But the point I'm trying to get at is if the body is like generating a consciousness in some way, and yes, you're right, we can't really prove that. There's 8 billion people. They are, for all we know, they might see 8 billion different color spectrums. It's all relative, blah, blah, blah. But the point I've been trying to get around to is however we want to talk about consciousness and belief and what may or may not be possible, the only thing I know for sure, like the only thing that I'm certain of at all, you know, because we get to get into solipsism or do you really exist? Are you a figment of my imagination? Am I of yours? Blah, blah, blah. But I do know that perception exists. I know I'm certain of one thing for my whole life and that's I'm perceiving this. Whether this is real or an illusion or not, I have no fucking clue. I can't really prove that. Yes, we can use scientific method, and if I knock on this table, it will always make that sound, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time. So what consciousness is, I have no fucking clue. But I do know, at the very least, that I am perceiving this. I know perception exists. And that's all I can really be certain of. So classic, I'm, I think, therefore I am, is kind of your ground zero. Uh, because, I mean, that is what he means. I mean, that's, I, I think. that's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's saying perception exists. I don't know. I think I was trying to be a little more specific than I think, therefore, I am. By saying perception exists, that's all I'm really certain of. Everything outside of it, I can't really know. Well, yeah, your perception is your experience. And, yeah, I don't know a better way to describe mm -hmm. it than, yeah, thinking right. or, yeah. Yeah. Now, when it comes to consciousness or having a soul or anything like this, that's a very different topic, and then we start to get in belief. I mean, for instance, that tricky word soul. Like, I would argue that soul is just a cute poetic word for what we talk about when we talk about the totality of your inner experience. 
Like, if you take your life from being born to when you die, and, like, the stretch of time of consciousness that you exist, to me, that's just a, what a soul is. It's like how long you were conscious, that's it. Whether or not it goes outside of the body after that, I have no fucking clue. I think it'd be pretty cool, and it'd be an interesting adventure if conscious, if you your body dies and then, you know, that little piece of energy or that little point of perception, whatever it is, that light floats away and goes into some fucking cosmic bureaucracy to get reincarnated or whatever, that might be pretty, pretty cool. Or it might be horrific, who knows. But again, now we're really getting into fiction, you know, and stuff we can't know for sure. Yeah, I would, this is kind of crazy, I guess this has just turned into a little bit of book talk, but I've been um, at mm. home recently and been listening to a lot of books on tape. This one that I'm listening to right now is about being wrong and learning from it and how it's so powerful mm. and it's called great topic yeah i thought i guess i thought of you immediately because he talks about like real examples of people that are successful who've learned to rethink and how that's a valuable skill set and it's called think again and i'm, I'm just going to recommend it <laughs> to any of our listeners it's by adam grant and um yeah it is a pop psychology book which i usually don't like um but in this case <laughs> probably because I'm biased to, to the common sense premise that your second answer um, is normally always better than your first answer. Just how <laughs> we learn from experience. Um, we're, we're rarely right or successful the first time around. Yes. You know? uh, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, so yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's silly yeah, to think that, that our first instinct is right. So I've always just right. dislike people thinking that's true anyway. Right. That's That reminds me of two, two things, two idioms that I've always taken an issue with. One is there's a Zen... Uh, quote, which I think actually came from Allen Ginsberg being influenced by Buddhism. Uh, and he says, first thought, best thought. And although, to give it context, if you're writing poetry, that might be true some of the time, right? But first thought, best thought at all times, every day, as a practical measure, not the best idea. And the other one that bothers me is first impressions are often correct. And it's I'm always just want to be like, well, no. First <laughs> right. impressions are often based on your fears and projections and insecurities and anxieties, and you're just thinking things that are really about yourself and your own insecurities, and you're aiming it at this person that you happen to be meeting. First impressions are often bullshit. You know, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've met somebody and they said, oh, I thought you were this kind of person, but now after months of knowing you, you know, you're... You're not a dick. You're much gentler and, and non-judgmental or easy to talk to or whatever it is. And so, yeah, with that, I agree. First thought, best thought might work well for art and in terms of, well, you know, impulse and expression and stuff. But when it comes to like, oh, your intuition is correct. Nah, dude, your intuition is probably bullshit that's based on your anxiety. Well, it certainly depends on what it is. I guess that's my whole thing. It's like the, it's case by case, right? There are yeah. some things that are instincts, but like most important decisions in our life are not instinct. They are things that we have to work hard and be careful about. And, and yeah, yes, yeah, and and mull over and really consider all the, the yeah. possibilities. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the the pop psychology book, and there's another book that is that is not pop. There's a writer I like. Uh, called René Dalmal. He was a French dude uh, who was very interested in the possibilities of consciousness. And he wrote a book called You've Always Been Wrong, hmm. which has a, a 
an essay that's the same title. Uh, and he's an author I like very much. Actually, the first, the first major section of these essays is called An Appeal to Consciousness. But he's an interesting guy because he was around in like the 30s-ish in France. The Surrealists, like under Breton and people, actually tried to get him to join the Surrealists because they really liked his writing. And he was like, fuck you guys, you're a cult. I'm not going to join. And so he, he was <laughs> like an anti-Surrealist during the Surrealist days. But one of the things that's interesting is he was a very early like psychonaut or neuronaut or whatever where he experimented with various drugs in order to see how far like he I think one time he like huffed ether or something as an attempt to get a near-death experience and just so he could write about it uh, and I think that essay is not in this book but it's certainly out there but Rene Dalmol very interesting author who wrote a lot about consciousness and certainly experimented with it in his personal life yeah that sounds so yeah but anyway I think I was just gonna say I think this movie despite being this sort of condensed half an hour photo montage, has all of these topics within it. You know, it's very dense with, you know, it's science fiction, so it's based on a lot of interesting ideas, or at least possibilities, right? I think we're getting into this conversation, which many people have had for centuries, because this movie has that within it. It has those, if you really pay attention, it makes you think about these things. We can change topics. I guess I'm going to add one thing. I, I just finished um, The God Delusion, which I feel like I started like a decade ago, and I never finished it, and yeah. I finally got around to it. Um, and he talks about, which is great, by the way. I was just like, wow, this is some of the, the is that, best that's arguments. Dawkins? Yeah. I mean, I love Titchens, like, God is not good or God is not great, um, which just, like, breaks down, like, all the different religions and the problems. But... Um, but Dawkins is, it's like a much more practical book in a, in a lot of ways, the way that he writes about very complicated things and makes them easy to understand. Um, but he talks about the idea of consciousness a little bit about the, at the end. And he talks, I mean, he talks about how, um, how Mark Twain's like, I'm not worried about dying. You know, I've been dead. I was dead millions of years before I existed. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, but he he poses something I have been thinking about recently, and I'm curious about it because I hadn't really thought about it um, mm. specifically. Where he talks about how, in a lot of ways, we die throughout our entire lives. It's like the person that you were as a child no longer exists. You know that oh, yeah. that is a death. So it's like even talking about a consistent like soul is complicated because mm -hmm. as you grow you're always becoming a different version of yourself. And by the time right. you get certain point away, can you really say that they're at all the same person, you know? And oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, well, now we're not just talking about consciousness. We're talking about a product of consciousness, which we call the self. Yeah. Right? I mean, I don't feel like the person I was two or three years ago. I feel like completely different. Uh, and that's happened throughout my life, like you said. I mean, what is it they say, um, you know, your cells regenerate every seven years. So every seven years, you're necessarily not just a different person, but a different body. Because your cells have all decayed and re-bloomed, I don't know what to call it, regenerated, till all the, the millions of atoms in your body are not the same atoms that they were seven years ago. 
I mean, we know that that's true. And so even in just a basic physical way, you're not the same person. But yeah, then there's like the, the self and how do you perceive yourself and how do you feel differently. I mean, I'm certainly not the person I was when I was in my 20s. And like I said, I don't even feel like the person I was a couple of years ago. I mean, if I could go back and talk, I mean, this is a classic time travel thing. If I could go back and talk to myself when I was 20 years old or when I was 30, aside from giving myself advice of what not to do, although if everything's predestined, it doesn't matter. And if everything's predestined, I would have already done it. I would have met my future self, right? Right. But uh, if, I, if I met myself when I was 20, I would tell myself to shut the fuck up. You don't know anything. Yeah. You know, you're, you're an idiot. I mean, I think that's progress. That's conscious progress is if you look back at a few years ago and go, I was so stupid. You know, that's, that's progress. <laughs> that's the best thing you can hope for is to think that yourself a few years ago was just a dummy. Yeah. Just didn't know what he was talking about. I mean, one of the things that we've been talking about, whether it's time travel or whatever, or the possibility of time travel through consciousness, is like, there's like the evolution of consciousness, right? And how we all sort of wake up in different degrees over time. And when I think about the people from the future in the movie, one of the things he says is like, they also travel through time, but much more easily. And it's like, oh, well, if this is possible for consciousness, then clearly humans in the year 4000 might, it might be a little better at it. They might just have a knack for it. It might be a naturally occurring phenomenon uh, and not something we desperately have to try for using drugs or meditation or whatever. I'm a big, <laughs> I don't want to say believer, but I'm a big believer in the possibility that consciousness can do a lot of things that we just aren't ready for, you know? Um, you remember that guy, Laurie, who was on our episode about the swimmer? Oh, yeah, of course. The philosophy of film guy? I was just going to say, one of the first conversations that we had when I went to visit him in Oregon was kind of about this. And I was like, it's entirely possible. I mean, despite whatever we may think about our belief in, you know, the possibility of a god or anything like this, you certainly can, I hope, agree that the universe is so enormous that the probability that there are other conscious life forms, aliens, it's probably the case, right? Yeah, I mean, it would be, because there's so many galaxies that are unexplored, it would be pretty selfish for us to think that um, we're the only ones that it worked out. Right. But, um, and, and the argument I was trying to make was like, okay, so we can accept that there's a certain probability that aliens exist. If they're in a different galaxy, you know, their planet, the way that they happen to evolve, it might not have been from water. It might have been something else. And if it is something else, if they're composed out of matter that we are not, it's possible that their consciousness is very different. And in that case, if we keep following that line of thought, it's like, well, if their consciousness is different, it can do different things. And maybe they are able to, I don't want to say time travel, but like interdimensional travel very easily because that's just what their brains do. And so they could be these sort of interdimensional beings that that's just how they function that's how they work that's their place in the universe i realize that that's 12 steps away from aliens might exist but you know this is i'm playing with it a little bit is this your opportunity to tell me that you're in fact one of these interdimensional traveling extraterrestrials <laughs> is that i will not it, answer that question is this you're coming out you're like just you're trying to plant the idea and be like it could happen listen <laughs> I may be an inexplicable floating torso, but 
I, I will not answer that question directly. I will say, quite, on, quite honestly, and not as a joke, I have certainly had dreams that appeared to be premonitions that months or years later I had deja vu and was like, hey, not only did I have this dream, I wrote it down. That doesn't prove anything to anybody else, but it proves it to me. So I've had some, some pretty stark and strange experiences when it comes to perceiving the passage of time, I should say. Yeah, I actually uh, have had premonitions that have come true. I think a lot of people have had, um, but I mean, my explanation would be I don't remember the ones that don't come true. Um, but I, I've had yeah. I've had some that have come true, but I've had a lot that haven't. What that means, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. I will say a lot of my predictions that have come true have been my worst fears realized, which <laughs> do, isn't doesn't take much to. To, to figure out why I dreamed about those. You know? Sure, yeah. manifesting that, yeah. yeah. Well, that's another thing. I mean, do I think that all dreams are some access to, you know, a unified field of consciousness or, or uh, you know, the possibility of parallel universes or, or premonitions or warnings about things that might... No, I think some dreams are complete fiction and your mind is just very powerful and can create these, based on your memories, can create oh, here's a scenario where you're talking to this person in your childhood home. Is that actually happening? Fuck no. No, not at all. But is it possible for your dreaming consciousness to, for lack of a better word, go somewhere that actually exists in time? Fucking maybe. I don't know. Are all dreams like that? Certainly not. Can it happen? Seems like it to me. I think there's Uh, also... I guess I would just... it's the power of the brain, I think, is more than we yes. really understand. And so what consciousness is and what we can create in our mind, those are the things where it's like, yeah, you do have these people that will say, oh, I saw this or whatever. And um, Sam Harris actually talks, t- breaks apart a few of these cases that people have publicized. And you get down to it and it's always them talking to someone else and memories being implanted clearly. Um, is, is how they do it. Um, but that doesn't negate the fact that your mind and consciousness can do things that we're, we don't really understand. I always think about like how you somehow can perceive things that you can't really see. You know, how we all mm-hmm. can feel like if somebody's staring at us and stuff like that. Right. And we know that somehow our, our brain is picking up on that. And yet I don't know how mm-hmm. it is, you know. You can sense it. It's a sense. Right. Somehow. Somehow it's a sense. So there's always those things where you're just like, how does your brain do that? And I do think through meditation, you can untap a lot of that brain power. Um, but to mm-hmm. ever truly uh, focus on nothing and it's hard. Med- right, meditation right. is really is really hard to get to that level that, that we're well, talking about. I mean, about. is it yeah. focusing on nothing or is it fo- or is it focusing on is it relaxing to a point where you're watching the stream of consciousness just passed without attachment, right? Isn't that the well? Thing? That's the me- that's one of the yeah philosophies for sure is to not uh, you know you can't control thinking, but you can control not getting attached to the thoughts as they pass right. and they try to. You can be separate from it and watch it happen right. rather than be, be a participant or certainly be swept up in it and get emotional about whatever memory it is or you know that kind of thing. I have definitely dipped into nothingness, but it's it is hard to describe because you don't have any memories when you do it, and it's <laughs> kind of so it's, it's like it's. Uh, but I would say during really intense runs, it's probably been when I've been been able to do it the mm. most. When I've been able to run for hours and have 
no memory of of that experience because you're in the zone. Yeah, because I was say. I was in the zone. I was just focused on one moment to the next, and um, mm-hmm. and that's what makes athletes. I mean, Foster Wallace talks about this. That's what makes athletes really good, and what, that's what makes their biographies so terrible. Because when you're in the zone and you're in the moment, how did you get that touchdown? How did you cross the finish line? It's ineffable. Yeah. I mean, you're saying even more. You can't even remember because you're so in the moment. You're almost not. Your your brain is not functioning in the quote unquote normal way, which is to archive it into memory, right? Well, for it's the, fascinating. Yeah, for I guess it's it comes back to the idea is for time to pass in the normal way, we have to fill it with content. And if we don't mm-hmm. have content to put into our time, our brain doesn't know what to do with that time. And so it can be frustrating, mm-hmm. like that's when you're bored, is when there's not any content for you to put in your mind. But if you purposely mm-hmm. devoid, get devoid from content, what does your brain do with that? And I, and, I, I, mm-hmm. and I guess I love, I'm like, that is really what meditation is in a, in a nutshell. It's like trying to um, break apart from time really you know or existing in a in a normal way or at least i guess we've definitely gotten sidetracked and we have some interesting stuff stuff to talk about yeah it just happens that i've just like been reading these books that talk about this um and then i'm like i think that's great yeah i mean well that's one of the reasons i like this movie is it's such a fascinating it opens up the possibility for these kinds of conversations the more you think about this movie you know whether we're talking about just the basic plot element of like, wait, how are they putting this guy to sleep and then his physical body's manifesting in the past? I mean, that already is an inexplicable thing where you're like, where you have to start to get into how does consciousness work, right? And these sort of things that we have to admit we don't really understand yet. I'd like to be optimistic and say we might at some point. But, I mean, like you said, the brain is very powerful but you also mentioned, you know, memories can be implanted. So the brain's also very fragile. It can right? be manipulated the brain's very, susceptible. Very, very easily, yes. And that's yeah. why it's like our whole, that's why it's like the who you are as the story you tell yourself almost gets me to a whole other rabbit hole. Because how much is that oh, yeah. story true? How much is it fabrication lies? And then how much does it matter? You know, I, I get mm-hmm. into these. And so that's probably why the Dawkins idea of like, those versions of you don't really exist anymore and um that and uh the adam grant book he actually says if you don't feel like you're any different than last year than the version you were last year then you probably didn't learn very much and it's like <laughs> it's like yeah that's yeah. that's absolutely true or yeah right because I mean, and learning like you said is based on finding out when you're wrong and right. what you're wrong about i mean one one thing this makes me think of is Talking about consciousness and talking about the self are two very different fucking conversations. It's like, very different. The self is such an enormous topic that's totally separate from the talking about what is consciousness, right? Because the self is a byproduct of consciousness. You know, they're, they're entwined, but they're, they're not mutually exclusive, but you, you can also talk about both and have very different conversations, right? Um, self is the whole thing where consciousness more the snapshot how you're defining it well, yeah okay well i thought of that because one thing you just said was like your narrative of self how do you think about the story of your life and that makes me think of i mean i talked about your inner experience like if there's a soul it's just your inner experience from birth to death 
you know, that's what we can safely call that. But then what about other people's perspectives of you? I mean, I have my inner experience and I know what my personal narrative is and how, you know, if I put together these dozen memories, I can tell my story, right? But that story, nobody else really knows. You know, there's all, there's, what am I trying to say? I'm saying there's like a subjective self, which is my story and my personal experience from my perspective. And then there's like this, uh, this objective self, which is what the whole rest of the world thinks about you. You know, it's your Wikipedia page. It's your, it's how your coworkers and friends view you. And that might be very fucking different from how you view yourself. You know, so it's almost like there's these two competing narratives of who you are. There's like the historical, like, here's all the things that you did that other people are aware of. And then there's this separate thing that we all have, which is, here's how you felt during all of that, right? And so, I mean, that's a, that's a whole can of worms. That's a huge topic. But, and obviously in Legette, we're seeing a little bit of both. Like we said, a lot of the photos are his POV. A lot of it's from his perspective. And yet, we're also seeing how the experimenters view him, how the people from the future view him, certainly how the woman he fell in love with views him, at least when she talks about him, right? Anyway, enormous topic. Yeah, and I feel like there's probably psychological terms for those different versions, and then how valid they are. I guess I definitely thought about that more, I guess we all do, when we're battling to define who we are um, in high mm. school and early college. And, and then we're confronted with the fact that different social groups can have such conflicting versions of who you are. And if you mm-hmm. don't have a strong sense of self, that's kind of what causes people to do the Zelig effect and just adapt to wherever they are around mm-hmm. um, because because their, their sense of self is so weak and so they have to kind of... But it's... Um, yeah, anyway, it's yeah. slightly... There's also like co- code switching and stuff. Right. Like the way you talk to your coworkers is very different from the way you talk to your family. It's very different from how you talk to your friends, etc. Even different friends you talk differently to, you know? To me, though, when I come down to it's like who is... The most authentic version of who I am. I mean, it's got to be that voice in my head, whoever that is. Yes. Yeah. And uh, oh yeah, it's the inner monologue it's, for sure. Right. And I don't, I don't trust that guy. You know. And <laughs> uh, and then we all have our. And I, one thing that's fascinating though, I didn't really realize, um, but like when Dawkins talks about uh, imaginary friends, he's like, basically he's like that inner monologue becomes an imaginary friend, you know, and he uses it to argue that's, that's probably how most religions were created where these people had created imaginary Mm -hmm. friends and they were visual hallucinations that they interacted with. And they of course thought they were religious because why wouldn't they, they didn't have any other explanation to understand that this was a common experience. Oh yeah. There's all sorts of, uh, I don't want to call it evidence, but there's all sorts of theories that any great prophet of any religion in history was probably schizophrenic by today's standards. You know, voices in their head, interacting with hallucinations, etc. But at the same time, there's p- plenty of logical, rational people that have um, dreams that they think that could be real or experience mm-hmm. hallucinations. I think um, Dawkins himself talks about some that he encountered, and he's just like, yeah, I don't believe this is real because I have this scientific explanation but if I didn't have it I don't know what would I think you know 
And mm -hmm. um, I definitely have had experiences like that. I, I can remember a pretty clear auditory hallucination that I heard. I won't go through um, the story, um, but I definitely did. And um, yeah, you're... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why, but it's, it's very easy to trick yourself. Our mind is very, mm -hmm. very much wants to trick us into thinking other things. And, uh, yeah. and growing up rel religious, I always thought that voice was kind of like my true self. So if that voice inside me, like wanted to do bad things, I was like, Oh, I'm really a mm. bad person because my inner guy is, is attracted to the wrong bad things. Right. Yeah. Well, there's also like, you know, there's, there's all sorts of, terms we could pull out for that. I mean, there's the higher self, there's the, the superego and the id. You know, the id is trying to pull you towards base desires, the superego is your con conscience that is trying to say, no, 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 that's not good. You know, there's all sorts of things like that. Um, but do you ever feel like then, you interact with that many different sets of voices in your mind? I don't know, I'm just curious. Because I, uh, I think we all I experience think, this differently. Yeah, for me personally, I mean, I have an inner monologue, but fairly often on any given day, I also have an inner dialogue where I'm sort of talking to myself, interviewing myself, asking a lot of questions in my inner monologue that I then have to try to answer, you know, difficult sort of existential questions. I mean, and that's the other thing. When we talk about any of this stuff, you know, like I've said a couple of times, like, well, at a certain point, we're talking about a belief. And it's like, when you, what was the thing you said a minute ago, which was, um, your brain's trying to trick you oh, yeah. or just, something. Yeah, just how, how you can't trust your brain because it's always wants to give you things that you, or it thinks that you want to see anyway, or that would help. Right. What I wanted to say is there's sort of a, a flip side to all this, which is, yes, your brain can trick you into believing different things, but on the other side, you can also take something like science and explain away something and the explanation can be completely false but it's all it's still very convincing uh because what we're talking about is things we can't know for sure and one thing i often think about when there's a, a valid skepticism of something that i feel skeptical about for whatever reason is like okay i mentioned the interdimensional beings right which again yes we cannot prove whether they exist or not that's not the point but one thing I think about a lot is like, okay, if there is an evolution in consciousness and Earth has been around for however many billions of years and humans have been around for this long and they're only, you know, who knows, 12% conscious uh, in terms of what they can do with the possibilities of their brain, right? And during the Dark Ages, they were 5% conscious, you know? One phrase that I think a lot is like our feeble Earth science. Like people really love to put a big stock in science. And part of me is like, we don't understand fucking anything. Yes, we can build houses and we can make computers uh, and do really impressive stuff with science and math. But when it comes to consciousness or the possibility of, you know, interdimensional beings or a god or anything, science doesn't have shit to say. It's, it's very feeble in that respect. It's, that's why I like always calling it Earth science. For all we know, there's another galaxy you know, there's Andromeda science that is far more impressive and is figuring I mean, out a lot more. And I, I agree, it's the best we've got. What you're talking about is like, basically, the the idea of different universes. I mean, that is science. I mean, that's physics. well, no, even oh no, we have a concept of that. Through I agree. Science, yeah. 
We have a concept of that, yeah. And we have quantum mechanics and things like that, which we sort of understand. Although a lot of quantum mechanics, if you ever try to read it, all they do is admit throughout the <laughs> throughout their thesis that like we don't know how this works. But here's some observations. And again, science is an ongoing process of trial and error and figuring things out, and sometimes theories get upended and replaced with something else and blah, blah, blah. What I'm saying is I agree it's the best we've got. I'm saying it is a fraction. It is a tiny little pinhole into how reality works. And I'm just saying if there's an earth science and we've gotten so far, if there is 100% of reality that can be understood, we might understand 2%. And there might be a galaxy somewhere else that for whatever reason, the way they evolved, the types of materials that they have on their planet, they were able to figure out 12%, which still isn't much, but it's way more than we got. So I agree science is valuable and it's the best we've got and we're working with what we have. But when it comes to the, the be all end all of how we explain things, I'm very fucking skeptical. And I, I don't like leaning on it as like, well, we can disprove that. And it's like, no, you can just gather the minimal amount of understanding that we have about reality and say, well, this doesn't fit with that. Well, good science is always evolving. And yeah, of course, science changes over time, but it doesn't change overnight. Um, I, I just read another book that I love with Lawrence Wright, Something Out of Nothing, where he explains how the universe mm. can exist starting with no material, which is a fantastic mm. book. And I, and I won't pretend to understand yeah. it. Um, the Earth is 4.543 billion years old. And I remember as somebody who grew up without much science because um, my mm. parents, as Dawkins would say, abused me um, with religion, cre creationism, and didn't tell me about science, but the, how they actually were able to discover how the earth, the age of the earth is incredibly fascinating. And I, I, would, I, I would say there's a lot of faith that the earth is actually that old because it's been proved through various of methods. And so that's like when you talk about some things, oh, yeah. of course we can't know, but we can try and look how far we've already come. Like there are definitely things in our own lifetime that we thought, oh, there's no way that we could do this. And now we can clone mm -hmm. rich people are cloning dogs, which I don't think is a <laughs> good is a good idea. But yeah, for a long time we we're like, oh, we can't do that. Well, and um, I think I think we were predestined to play God at some point with science. Right. But I just want to be very clear: I would never be skeptical about verifiable data of how old the Earth probably is. If you're talking oh, about God. carbon dating and stuff, no, I'm not skeptical of that at all. I'm skeptical of, like I said, how does consciousness work? What are its possibilities? Do deities that we might call gods based on their abilities might exist to interdimensional things that do other dimensions fucking exist these things i don't think science quite has a handle on no and, uh, but maybe I'm, they will someday if i'm a yeah and i agree yeah. i would love to be optimistic that's why I, i've been saying the word yet a yeah lot. we don't okay. understand that yet yeah and that's what i was that's what i was trying to say if earth science only understands five percent of the potential of reality and the potential of the brain and consciousness and some planet on andromeda understands 12 percent that's still a lot more but 12 percent ain't shit compared to 100 and that's all i was trying to say is like i'm always wondering like well, how definitive yeah i would totally exactly. agree we know like when i ever think about history it's like we only have one piece of the puzzle we don't, we don't have everything mm -hmm. that goes around it and so we don't understand a lot of the context which really um changes things 
what uh, now, now I feel if I got your disease of losing my train of thought um, oh yeah ah what, what were we just talking about not understanding I was talking about um, the let's see the potential bullet points potentials of consciousness and the fact that oh. what I like to call our feeble earth science probably understands a very small fraction of reality oh this... not that what we understand isn't valuable because it is right okay so this is where I'm gonna I'm going to try to blow your mind because I'm like, there's still so little, like you talk about aliens. I'm like, there's still so much we don't understand about this place that we're on. Like we mm -hmm. assume that we're the only being that has consciousness. We don't know that. We don't know. Oh, we have, we have, we know, we don't know. Dolphins have consciousness and stuff. Well, even if you want to say like, oh, an intelligent animal, they express complicated thought. They have consciousness. Well, that's not mm. the proof of consciousness because we don't really understand what consciousness is. Could trees have consciousness? We understand that they take care of their young and they protect their young. Mm -hmm. We, we can see that. Like, mm -hmm. and if we want to talk about like whose story is the earth and universe, like if you want to talk about who's been here the longest, viruses have been here the longest you know yes do they have consciousness do they exist do they understand the oh, world yeah. more than we do you know i don't i yeah, don't and, <laughs> one, and one thing and fungi fungi right. have been here a long yeah, they've been too. here I mean, millions of years yeah yeah and one one thing i think about a lot is you know you always hear this stupid phrase humans are at the top of the food chain no they're not viruses and bacteria are yeah they murder us at a large scale yeah <laughs> you know and they're all over our body at all times bacteria not viruses but you mentioned the trees thing. One just science fact that blew my mind recently, last couple of years, was the fungi in any given forest actually serve as like a connective tissue between all the trees. I mean, they quote unquote talk. Yeah. The trees are able to talk through the fungi. Fungi are literally the internet of the forest. Yeah. And that's amazing. It is, cr uh, it is I can crazy. Like, I can say that out loud, and I can visually imagine it, but to fathom it is wild. <laughs> it's, they, like, so impressive. There's a great... I feel like on Netflix I got into these, which we probably watched the same documentary where we don't have to, like, where it talks about this, but there was one that I don't think was a documentary, but it was, like, a living art thing, and it just, like, showed you, like, the forest, and it, like, did lights up to try to show you how they communicated, uh -huh. it, and it was... It was just it was just great yeah because that is something that we yeah we assume because basically just because we can talk to each other that somehow we must be mm -hmm. the only people that can do this and um yeah we have no idea and um yeah but i mean we another i mean we don't even need to get into it but we know that octopuses and dolphins can quote unquote talk to each other in their own way you know i mean dolphins have echolocation and shit and so do ants which is just like such an impressive thing that we do not have. Although we are, we do know when someone ten feet behind us is staring at us, so we have it. We have a sense of it, a little bit. But anyway, we are so off topic. Um, one of the, or we're we're on topic because this about is all yeah. This is all in the movie in some way. Yeah. Uh, it, this movie leads to that kind of thing. Did you watch? Uh, I did want to bring up. Oh, just just as we were, I guess John Oliver just did a piece on octopuses. I don't know if you saw it, but that's worth checking, oh, no, I, checking out. I can't I can't watch John Oliver. No offense to him, I'm sure he's a very nice guy, but I just don't find him funny. Because he because he did like a whole thing just about octopus because he was just like these are amazing creatures and we nobody's oh, yeah. giving him credit. I'm just I mean it's kind of right, right. right up your alley. But all right, teach. Their, yeah, I would te like that. Teach their own, but uh, like yeah, he's just kind of like. 
I learned I mean, some from Octopus. I didn't yeah. know, but it's not it's not a comedy. But he's just like, let me just no, tell yeah. you. I would eight watch minutes that. about octopuses. Um, yeah, I would watch that uh, just out of total interest in the fact that oct- octopi are fascinating yeah. alien life forms that are just in our ocean. He talks Did about you know why of... it's octopuses and not octopi because of the roots. He t- gives, oh, you, gives you the history of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, octopi sounds cooler. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you know what I mean when I say it. Yeah, of course. But one of yeah. the things that I love about about octopuses <laughs> is... Uh... Shit, now I forgot. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> what was I going to say? Something about um, octopuses. Yeah. Uh, oh, did you know that due to global warming, octopuses are thriving? Oh, really? I did not know that. Yeah, they're actually, like, as, the, as certain other you know, fish and crustaceans are actually dwindling in numbers because the literal heat of the ocean is increasing. Octopi are thriving and are mating more and are eating more things. Uh, And so the population of octopuses are actually doing pretty well as the ocean temperature heats up. Interesting thing. uh, Interesting evolutionary phenomenon that's happening in our time. Well, who knows? Uh, I guess I don't know if you've watched, like, David Attenborough has done a lot about how the world, and I, I just watched Seaspiracy, I don't know if you saw that, where it talks no. about how fishing is destroying so much of the ocean and how, basically, the, the fishing industry supports slavery, among other things. Um, but a lot of interesting stuff, uh, and I, it seems like the, we're not going to be here for that much longer. <laughs> uh I had no idea how much of the wild has been destroyed in our lifetime. Um, and so like even talking about the future, I'm just, I'm, I don't know. I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to yeah, say that that's a, we're going to see the, like our, us personally are going to see the end of the world, but we're going to see how we're going to have to make some changes because we're going to have no longer yeah. be able to make choices because of the way that we're destroying the world right now. And it's, Anyway. I agree, and this is a conversation that is happening All a lot more often yeah. the last few years. But is um, it too late? I don't know. I I don't know. Well, I mean, I always think of the George Carlin thing of save the planet. The planet doesn't need to be saved. We need to save ourselves. Right. The planet still will die. The planet's going to be just fine. And in fact, if we all die, the planet's going to do a lot better. Yeah. It will probably uh, be able to rebuild. <laughs> thrive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, let's face it. There was a point in time where comets hit the earth and everything was molten lava. And now we have trees. You know, it'll take a lot. It'll take a long time, but the, the planet will be okay. Yeah. I think. I think when we talk about Unless, save the planet, we're talking yeah. about our ability to live on the planet, which is, yes, which is absolutely. what is going to change. Um, well, that's the whole George Carlin joke. He's like, we yeah. need to rephrase that because yeah. the planet's fine. Yeah. We need to save people. Yeah. But one thing that I've been meaning to bring up during this, all this combo is when we were talking about powers of consciousness and stuff, science fiction, there are many examples just in the last 50 years of things that only existed in our imagination and in science fiction, which are now just part of everyday life. I mean, we're talking on video chat right now, which, as you know, is there's a moment in 2001 where he talks to his daughter from space on a video chat. Uh, in 1960, that was not... I mean, that was a novel idea, and now it exists. And there's all sorts of, you know, mobile phones, credit cards, fucking robots. 
uh, all sorts of things that humans are able to dream up in science fiction that eventually come true. Now, was it because of the influence of that science fiction story? Maybe, maybe not. Case by case, right? But, I mean, that's just a fascinating fact. All sorts of things that we once thought, oh, that'll never happen, that's just science fiction. And now it's just part of everyday life. It does. It is interesting, like, what we've seen scientific breakthroughs on and what we haven't. I feel like that's always fascinating because it's like when we were kids and we were probably like, oh, the world's going to be like this when we grow grow up. I feel like the Mm -hmm. one everybody talked about was like, oh, we're not going to have any diseases anymore. Healthcare seems (laughs) to have not changed that that, that much. uh, Right. Because we're still dying more now now than ever before. And um, Well, also, they didn't, I mean, one of the theories of global warming is or not theories but they've shown that like oh different viruses are being unearthed ancient viruses because the ice caps are melting yeah and they were just contained in this frozen no man's land and now they're just in the ocean and in the air so there's that yeah didn't see that coming i mean actually i bet some i bet some people did see that coming different types of scientists we all knew i mean you could even see you can see what's his name Fauci actually do I, like I watched a documentary where he specifically talks about this happening that was like in 1990s with the current pandemic mm-hmm. it, I mean it's crazy anyway how people giving fun but yeah he he predicted it exactly what was happening and then we experienced but but he argued basically it's like this can happen every it's it's about happens about every hundred years and it's just we're going to be due for it to happen there's not much we can do um, they're going to mm-hmm. crop up, and um, we'll have to figure out how to deal with it. I mean, the main thing in the way is greed, right? I mean, we could have switched away from fossil fuels 20 years ago, but there are a lot of people that make a lot of money off of whether it's factory farming or fossil fuels or whatever it is. And unfortunately, greed and wanting to maintain enormous wealth and not share it and selfishness is what's preventing humans from fixing these very large-scale problems, right? Because a lot of people make a lot of money off of these very specific things. And yeah, we could switch to different power sources, but there's just too much money in oil, and it's destroying the world. And there's all, I mean, there's way more examples than that. Yeah, but, uh, and like you would say, every big industry, you could look at it and say, if they would about-face and fix this, they wouldn't. I, I feel now that it's more about capitalism than it is about necessarily any individual. It's our worship of these corporations. And even when you talk about the individuals in the corporation, ultimately they act in the corporation's best interest over their own personal best interest. And we see that Mm -hmm. through generation after generation. And that's how these big corporations are able to keep power and stay vital presence and I'm like these are just an imagined thing this corporation does not mm-hmm. actually exist and yet it is destroying our world and I'm like and so anyway won't get into yeah, the whole I thing mean, but like I mean there's also just money like the the way money works is insane inflation and like the Federal Reserve like yeah. big banking all this kind of thing. I mean it's just but it's bonkers. but yeah you could break it down to like where we get our food where we get our energy those things are destroying oh, yeah. the world. Yeah, there's no. no we also know. It. Yeah, we know for a fa- factory farming causes more 
pollution and and all that kind of stuff then and anyway in fact, we can we can comp- and the fishing industry is makes up 50 percent of all the plastic in the ocean and a lot of people want to blame individuals and say you need to be careful about your plastic but it's no it's the fishing industry that's what's causing all the plastic in the ocean not any mm-hmm. end this is one time i'll agree with you individuals can't make a difference with plastic we can't we can do our best right but it's until the fishing industry changes then there there will continue to be a problem with plastic in the ocean. Maybe. Oh, yeah. yeah. One of the cleverest propagandas of the last few years, last couple decades, beginning of 20th century, 21st century, is uh, putting the onus on the consumer yeah. and saying, oh, you need to lower your carbon footprint. You need to buy bar soap instead of body wash because of the plastic. And it's like, motherfucker... Those bottles of body wash are being produced at the same clip every day. And that plastic is going to end up somewhere because it's a physical thing. Uh, You not buying it isn't changing it. And we've talked about this before. It would take hundreds of thousands of people all agreeing on the Internet, we are no longer going to buy this body wash for them to actually stop making it. Because then it would affect the, now, the bottom line. Now, I still think right? people should do ultimately what they think is right, and that still has value. But an individual can does not bear the responsibility. But does it affect change? Well, it can. It, it has personal but, value for your right. morals. And it can know? affect change because other people see how you behave. But I don't, I'm not going into that whole thing. I'm just saying that to try to bear the responsibility of the individual, that's what I'm saying is wrong. Mm. An individual can um, affect change. It doesn't happen all the time doesn't happen overnight but it can happen um but yes but an individual can't be responsible that's my whole thing it's like when you get into anything about any of these topics and anybody in the group wants to blame a trump supporter just as an extreme example or you know you guys know my politics it's like is it that individual is it his fault all these problems no it's no he's part of he's, a system. He's guilty. He's also he, just been indoctrinated by bigotry and stuff. Yeah, I mean, he didn't have... He's a, he's a victim. He, and that's what, He's an ideological victim. All right, and now I'm going to wrap it into free will and we'll get back to the movie. Because it's like... Because okay. that, to me, it's like when we talk about free will, it's like, personally, I don't, like, believe in this whole... Or I'll just say I don't know, but I don't live in a world where I'm like, oh, all my actions are predestined. However, I will say that all of our actions have a probability of happening based on where we were born, who we were born yes. to, you know, there's so many options that are taken away from us so that we, uh, Google can predict how I behave. It's not complicated, mm-hmm. you know. So do I have any choice because I'm so predictable because of all these factors that I don't have control over? I mean, that's the whole right. thing where it's like, is anybody really an individual, you know, in that sense? But, right. But yeah. And that, now there's an interesting idea too. I mean, we, I think we both agreed that, like, the idea of predestiny is kind of annoying. Yeah. And I would That's prefer not to. to say it. Yeah, it's annoying. I <laughs> would prefer not to, to buy into that. I would like if that were not the case, right? But predestination and determinism are two very different topics. Uh, that's, like, the difference between consciousness and the self. You know, they're just separate ideas. And it's like, you can, things can be deterministic, and you might act in a certain way, like you said, based on where you're born what your upbringing was, what ideas you were indoctrinated into, whether it was religion or bigotry or open-mindedness. And that's going to have a great effect on how you react to different situations. And to some extent, that is predictable, right? And that's determinism. But 
the really interesting thing, like you mentioned, the algorithms is like to what extent is having computers learn the deterministic factors of what I Google and what my interests and tastes are and then keeping me in that echo chamber to what extent are computers using determinism to actually increase the probability of predestiny do you know what I mean it's like they're taking all this data that's deterministic and then they're trying to keep you in that deterministic bubble that to me seems like that's creating predestination to some extent do you know what I mean yeah it's weird it's weird. And to manipulate you so they can sell you so that people yes. can advertise for you. which and, all, and that's the tragedy, is like, it's all the bottom line, it's all greed, it's all trying to sell shit. But it right. gets even worse because it's about our ideas and our belief systems and ultimately who we tell who, ourselves who we are. It, and that's what I think is crazy, is that right now we live in a world where a lot of people, you know, that are people that I really disagree with. I can't blame them because I know mm -hmm. they are the product of their environment and they had very little choice. And the saddest thing is that they think that they're making a choice. And so like for mm -hmm. me and maybe, you know, yeah, you can just, you could say that I'm just, you know, pretentious to even say this, but just to hear people act so adamantly like they think that they've decided that they've somehow come up with something unique about um, political ideology. I'll say, I'll just, I'll just say that. It's just that's what baffles me when I'm like, how can you not be aware of how easily you've been are being manipulated? And we are all are being right. manipulated. So I'm not going to say that I'm well, not, but but I'm I try to be. Aware. I mean, how can you not be aware? It's because yeah. that idea hasn't been introduced to them yet. That's not part of their reality or their life, you know. Um, I feel like that is something that I realized when I was pretty young that I was like it's easy to get things if you're willing to hurt people and because it's easy to manipulate people and, and it has yes. just like colored my thinking of what success is I was like it's like most of the time the most successful people are the ones that were willing to hurt the most people and not, not feel right. bad about it and uh it's not always like that speaking of manipulation you know we already mentioned how like the brain is powerful but it's also very fragile and it's very susceptible to being manipulated and being convinced of bullshit honestly and being indoctrinated right it's a tragic thing uh, i feel like I apologize for our, like, handful of listeners if they feel like they've just time-traveled back to their freshman dorm room and <laughs> over-listened. Because uh -huh. yeah. I feel like I don't... Oh, no, I, I mean, I think these are healthy conversations to have. Yeah. I mean, I hope that these conversations are being had in a dorm room somewhere. You know, I mean, that's... it's the Our, our education system is fucked and purposely doesn't work, has been systematically uh, dumbed down over the last couple decades. But the whole point of going to college is having open-minded conversations and complaining about the way things are. I was thinking something a minute ago to what you were saying about people being easily manipulated and, and how it's hard for me to, to blame someone, whether I disagree with them or not. And I think something that's happened in the last few years, which is really tragic socially, is I don't want to say the powers that be and make this conspiratorial, but things have become very divisive in the last 10 years and the the far left and the far right the alt left and the alt right whatever you want to call them uh liberals and conservatives complete anarchists and then you know fascists 
it's become really stark, and I would argue that both camps have been indoctrinated in different ways to where there's no center, there's no middle ground, there's no Venn diagram of crossover anymore. And I think that actually... Imagine how convenient it must be for the people that are in power if all the people, whether they're middle class or poor, whether they are gay or bigoted, uh, regardless of their skin color or their orientation, if they all hate each other and they're all arguing all the time, they cannot unite. And one thing I think about all the time is this classic quote of like, well, the class struggle unites us all. That's the real struggle throughout history. And this whole thing with identity politics, although it's not new, it's certainly new in terms of a mainstream conversation. And whether it's the right uh, or bigotry, I should say, disliking that that's a big conversation now, or whether it's the people fighting for their, their rights and their justice and their ability to express themselves the way they want, there's something like fundamentally, there's like a fundamental sickness of mind where well like I said imagine how convenient it must be for the forces in power for people to think of themselves as not just fundamentally sick but as being the enemy because both sides if both sides hate each other they're both the enemy to each other you know and how convenient is that for all the people that are actually controlling everything and that are indoctrinating people through media and all this kind of stuff and that's why I reluctantly agree like yeah you're right we might not be around much longer I hope that's not true you know I hope that somebody listens to this in the year 3000 and is like oh well now I know what happened in the year 2042 and so obviously all that stuff at the early 21st century didn't matter and look the climate's fixed because we invented some technology that makes it rain or whatever you know um, so there's all sorts of stuff like that I mean anything could happen every generation has thought that they were seeing the end of the world but there were always different reasons for that. And it seems to have gotten worse over time and more and more dire and drastic uh, and more convincing that, like, oh, shit, this is the end, dude. Um, I mean, and that certainly seems yeah. true now yeah. with the way the planet's dying. But, again, who knows? They could invent some weather well, technology that... It just our eating just, habits would probably have to change, and I guess that's what I'm, like, not, oh, yeah. not seeing is going to change rapidly, it seems like. No. And so that's what I'm concerned with. Um, but I, I mean, although you do see more fast food places that they all have an Impossible Burger. That now. is true, and that is very encouraging. And just over the past, like I would say, couple years, I've seen more stuff um, go that direction. But like, is it near near quick enough where it's going to have any kind of lasting impact? Because we're right now still seeing um, every other country um, adopt, and unfortunately our big product that we give the world is fast food chains. So we see every yeah. other, other, we see every day, we see a new country get a new McDonald's and start eating more cattle and like, so it's just, even though we're making strides, mm -hmm. uh, still more people are eating meat that weren't every day, you know? And so it's like, mm -hmm. I don't, yeah. And then there's a whole other thing. I'll just say, I really liked, this is also, I'll just say, it's going to sound uh, cliche, but I thought Seaspiracy was great. I would recommend seeing it because I definitely did not understand as much of what was going on in the sea. I would say because I didn't want to know. It is so sad. <laughs> it is so hard to watch. Yeah. And, like, um, I really want my wife to watch it, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to 
be able to turn it on because I'm just like I I don't even know if I want to rethink about all these things. Um, the big right. the big thing I'll say is that uh, currently main fish uh, mainstream fishing that you know you buy at your supermarket supports the slave trade, which I think is just an insane undisputable fact that that documentary shows you footage of which I'm just like are we have slaves um, by fishing for it for people and Jesus. it's just it's it's insane um, but it gives you like a snapshot of what our experiences of perception is compared to like a, an average person like I'm just like it's so crazy when we can think, we feel so special because of how much privilege that we have in our lives, but that's only because of something random that happened where we could have been born into such a different perspective and have such mm -hmm. a different version of reality. And that's what blows my mind and makes me really question even the concept of what self is. Because I'm like, if a person can be changed so much by his environment and it's like there's mm -hmm. so many different environments that could have such a variety way that they could impact your life it's like um mm -hmm. how do you even know if you're you you know <laughs> you know right yeah 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 i mean and i you know i brought this up to to people before like, you know especially if you're talking about religion or something you know what, what if you were born into a hindu family right what if what if you were born by your own parents but for whatever reason, they put you up to adoption, and then you were adopted by a Buddhist person, and you were raised that way. You would you would feel as strongly about Buddhism as you do now about Christianity or whatever it is. And you know, one thought experiment I always think about is like, you know, take any famous musician. You know, uh, if Charles Mingus were born and lived in his neighbor's house. If, if his parents instead bought the house next door, would he still have become Charles Mingus? Or would, it, or would being 100 feet to the left his whole life have changed him? You know? It's like, it's not even just your upbringing. It's like where you are on the planet. Like, you know, you're looking at a totally different window than the one you actually grew up in. How's that going to change you? I don't know. But that's um, how, why I think we're all obsessed with time travel so much, is because we, <laughs> we all, to, like, to try to take us back to the movie, because uh, I think yeah. we all do get obsessed about these topics, about um, what if things were a little different, who would I be then, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of oh, yeah. sad that we have to accept that we don't know, and <sighs> that there's... At least hundreds, if not thousands, of other versions and each one of us that are just there that will go on as just untapped potential. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know if that makes me feel good or bad. I'm just like, <laughs> they're inside. They're, they're, they're lives unlived that will never be lived, right. you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a lot. Um, what could have been... Right. Right. I mean, you can't. You can't know. And like you said, this is why we're so fascinated with time travel. It's like, if you could time travel and just talk to yourself, what age would you go talk to yourself at? What would you tell yourself? You know, I, I'm asking now. What would you do if you if you could time travel, but you could only talk to yourself? Because otherwise, you'll fuck up the timeline or something. What, what would, would you do? What would you tell yourself? I'm going to give you a really boring answer. I probably would pass. That's fine. Because, I mean, oh. you'd, cause, cause I would just be afraid. Because 
basically, I would kill the version of myself that I am if I did that. Because if I talk to my past version... Not if it's predestined. I, I guess that's true. Not if it's predestined. But if I talk to my past self and like it actually caused change, then my present self would no longer be the version that I am that did it. Yeah, you would create a branch. Yeah. You would create a branch in reality, yeah, right? Yeah. But no, okay. So let me let me let me tweak the thought experiment. If you could go back in time and talk to yourself with the guarantee that this is predestined, but you have to say one thing to yourself, what would you say? With the guarantee that it's not going to change anything. You're going to come back to the Tuesday that you left, and you're just going to continue your day. Um, what would you say? Things are going to get better. Probably talk to myself like during a tough time. Probably, I think mm -hmm. my toughest times, middle school age. I feel like it's pretty normal. Um, mm -hmm. Just you know, things yeah. are going to get better. Um, yeah, I think that's mm -hmm. probably probably just some encouragement that uh, mm -hmm. how my life is now is not how it's always going to be, <laughs> which, is, which is something I try to tell my students <laughs> because then we, mm. we all need the reminder. Uh, we can get so lost in the present moment, and if we're not happy with it, we, it can make us disillusioned. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it can be over, especially at that age when your hormones are kicking in yeah. post-puberty and like you're just overwhelmed emotionally by everything. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, you gotta tell me yours. What, what, what's yours? Well, I don't. I don't know. I'd have to think about it. Um, <laughs> oh, you, you get a pass. I don't know. Well, hey, uh, I didn't have a stock answer. Um, I think if I could really give myself, <laughs> well, I have an answer. <laughs> I have an answer if I could change something. Not if it's predestined, but if I could create a branch reality alternate universe. I have an answer for that. I would say don't date this one person because <laughs> it's going to be miserable. I would, yeah, I would go back to maybe my 20s or something. Actually, you know what? No, I'm going to take it even further. If I could create an alternate reality self, uh, I would go back to my early 20s and I would say don't date anyone ever. Focus on your craft. Work on that. Uh... And just ignore it, you know? If you just jerk off or something, who knows? I, I don't know. I would, uh, I would tell myself to be more self-sufficient and less codependent. Yeah, for sure. All right, I'm, I'm uh, going to challenge you to make a version, a, a, a picture version of that interaction. <laughs> you know? uh -huh. Yeah, I, I want to see that. You want me to do like a drawing? <laughs> no, you could take pictures. <laughs> Okay. I, I um, want to see a movie version uh, of you going back and telling yourself that talking to my younger self, and then you know what, whatever happens after that. Right. Yeah. Um, that's fun. I could do. I could make make my own photo montage, make my own legette. Yeah. But it's just me talking to myself. Actually, I did have a science fiction story I was writing, where this is funny. I can't believe I didn't think of this the whole time. But I had a science fiction story I was writing where this guy uses meditation to go back in time to talk to his former self. Uh, and so that by the end, everything that happens in the movie doesn't happen. It gets blinked out of reality, right? Because he goes on the, a different path. Uh, I actually filmed some of that in New York and I never, I never f finished it. But uh, anyway, um, this movie, what, what would I tell myself if I 
if it wasn't going to change anything. Sure. I don't know. I'd probably just hang out. I'd probably just be like, yeah, it's crazy, right? I'm from the future. And I'd probably just joke around with myself. I don't even know if I'd even give advice. I'd probably just try to have a fun conversation with my past self. And be like, and then, yeah, kind of say what you said. Don't worry about it. You know, it's going to happen the way it happens. Just, just have fun. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb with my rating. Okay. Because this is such a unicorn movie. Nothing exists like it. And I think the fact that we've gotten two hours of conversation about some very... Uh, strange and difficult topics out of two hours of conversation out of a half an hour movie this movie is absolutely a star this is a movie victory and i've actually time traveled this is actually an earlier version of myself that's actually been talking to you this whole time so oh, i didn't yeah, yeah, yeah i don't know uh oh yeah you got to do like the star um the star sound. <laughs> The, the star uh-huh. movie victory it's a movie victory I like everybody yeah everybody should just dance I don't, I don't know we need to we need a yeah. better sound for that <laughs> yeah I don't, I don't. but what do you think I mean this is only your first time watching it um, well, I guess you watched it twice yeah I watched it twice I I mean for me this movie inspires and so I'm trying to think of a symbol for me that represents inspiration um hmm. probably the question mark is the best even though it's kind of overused oh. um I was thinking like a lightning bolt. Oh, a lightning bolt. Okay. Yeah. I feel like uh, a question mark with a lightning bolt through it so that they make like an X. Yeah. Whoa. I kind of like that symbol. It's a question. Okay. Yeah. You can kind of see it visually. Yeah. Classic yeah, yeah. lightning symbol through the question mark. Yeah. Um, the zigzag. Yeah. So I guess that's it. Because I, I do, and I guess I'm challenging you to create a movie like that because I'm like, I really want to do it. I feel like that's just sounds like something i can do and now i'm just like oh that would be cool Mm -hmm. um anything any type of art that inspires other art i think is kind of the highest forms of art and um a lot Mm -hmm. of times that can be unfinished um stuff that's like this uh you know i definitely would say uh this is a movie that people watched and was like whether they did it a whether they did or not, they were like, oh, I can I can do something like that. And it inspired them. I can do that. I can, and mm-hmm. obviously nobody has, but it inspired, uh, you know, at least Terry Gillian and Ryan Johnson to make some great films. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's great. Uh, the scientific rating, um, not enough data for the science, just the fact that it wasn't long enough. I, I, I could not get a scientific rating out of it. No real surprise there. Uh, we see... We see how science just cannot uh, measure a film that is 28 minutes and almost exclusively pictures, except for a few seconds of some of some fluttering eyes. Uh, some woman blinking, woman blinking yeah. um, which is a great moment. It is. It's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I also just like that moment because he's clearly admiring her. Like, I wonder if Chris Marker dated that person because he does photograph her in a very like loving way. It looks like a lover looking at their partner sleeping and just being like, oh, what, an, what a peaceful moment. You know, that come for me, that comes through yeah. in that, that montage. I would agree. But yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense. Um, I wouldn't say that he would have to like feel that way to, to do it like that, right. but I could certainly see why you think that. Yeah. Um, 
We have, I guess we've kind of gone long. We had some reviews and a So there's no scientific plans. rating at all. Yeah, it's N-A. It's, it's not enough data. You know how science is. Okay. You know, you don't have enough data. Yeah. You can't play the game. Um, if there's not 90 <laughs> minutes of data, the movie doesn't exist. Um, so, again, not science is not sure if this is a movie. Yeah, it doesn't have an opinion about this. Um, well. If maybe if we put in, if we made the scientific rating watch it three times in a row... Just to see, mm. just to see, <laughs> to mm. see if it would become a movie. Um, I would love to see okay. some reviews of this film being like, you know, have you have you thought about doing some scenes? Like just question, question marks. <laughs> well, <laughs> I actually I have a review here on Amazon okay. for the DVD. It's uh, David Drake, two stars. The title is "Poor Quality Control: Frowny Face." Uh, the the Criterion DVD has Le Jeté and Sans Soleil, which is a travelogue movie, which is also really great and is also about memory and stuff. And he says, Sans Soleil seems fine, but something is wrong with the shorter movie. Basically, except for a brief section, the scenes jump from one frozen image to another. I wonder if the disc is somehow stuck on the chapters part of the menu. I expected better from Criterion. So, he's either joking very dry... Or he does not understand. Why would he? What, why would he buy photos. it and not like know that it was photos? I'm sure it also says in the description on the back of the right, the back of the disc or whatever. Anyway, let's see. So is he just like buying movies randomly? And he's just like, oh, Criterion. I'll just buy every Maybe. Criterion movie. But he likes Sans Soleil, so he's obviously fine with the style. I don't know. Anyway, that brings me up uh-huh. into. A whole nother topic, which is people that write reviews on Amazon. Like, who is who is that for? I mean, who's, who's bothering? I mean, to do it. I mean, take this guy for example. Like, if he is telling an inside joke, like, is he just like waiting mm-hmm. for someone to get the joke? Like, if he's just like, oh, this is so funny. I'm just gonna put this on Amazon. Um, maybe uh-huh. maybe some people that are doing a podcast on it will mention it and you know get into the zeitgeist. I mean, it uh-huh. takes a lot of effort to do a review. Um, I don't know. Does he have other reviews? Can you tell whether or not he's being serious or not? Oh, he does. Yeah, he's fucking around. There's a... Uh... <sighs> yeah. He, ha- <laughs> he has a review of Citizen Kane. One star. Shame on you, Mr. Wells. I wanted to like this film, but my loyalty to a certain newspaper publisher <laughs> won't allow it. Old-fashioned values are also classics. Okay, uh, that, that's great. That's, that's... I'm not. Yeah, he, he wrote all these on the same day. I think he's fucking around. Uh, he has one on Don Quixote. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the title just says, "Even the tra- new translation can't save this turkey." Uh, oh, he has a very positive review of Honey I Shrunk the Kids. <laughs> Five stars. The title is chilling, and he said a hauntingly plausible look at what the future holds. If developed nations can't, won't control access to destructive technologies. I only hope this movie serves as both a warning and call to action. Well, that is so he's he's great. he's joking. Do you yeah. think that maybe that actually is Chris Martin, who is possibly Christopher Mark Chris Marker? <laughs> no, uh, I, was ta- I was talking. No, it says was, his name is David Drake. I was talking about the Coldplay lead singer, <laughs> the Coldplay guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't no, know. I'm, I'm sorry, but um. That to me is hysterical because it's like, 
who is the audience that he's like I, I, <laughs> us I, I guess so well you've done a great job um, you said his name is David Drake that just sounds made up mm-hmm. yeah yeah he, oh okay last one he has a review of Disney's Pinocchio two stars the title is okay parentheses if you can suspend disbelief the, the review is it's a classic but wooden acting and a fundamental misunderstanding of marine mammal physiology have always ruined this one for me. Then again, I am a whale biologist. Don't whale biologists have, like, their own name? Or are they just called whale biologists? Just whale biologists. <laughs> I think they have their own name. Marine. Yeah, it's marine. Marineologist. Marine I don't biologists, know. aren't they? That's what they're called. He specifically studies <laughs> whales, yeah. though. Uh, that is, that uh, is some great word uh, wordplay, though. Wooden acting, mm-hmm. Pinocchio. Very, for Pinocchio, very yeah. clever. Uh, yeah, yeah, great job, guy. Yeah, that whale. Uh, not, I'm not sold by that whale. How are you eating meals inside that? I don't know. It doesn't work. Right. Fundamental misunderstanding of how whales work in Pinocchio. He's not wrong. The Bible has the same uh, problem. Big fish. What is that? Oh. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, did you pick a movie for next week? Okay. So I thought about this and i was like let's just do it let's we're gonna do unless you have a problem with it let's do um vertigo next week i know oh shit i I was just like it makes perfect sense i was like there was an essay about how this is the same idea so i'm like that's great i was like there's no Um, better transition to vertigo that i could think of so mm -hmm. this is you know i actually saw it in a theater recently but what's funny is i was thinking of watching it this week before i watched legete last night and I actually drove around, like I went to yoga and the grocery store and stuff, and I listened to the Vertigo soundtrack just like while I was driving. And like I had this funny moment, because a lot of it's Jimmy Stewart driving around being a private detective, right? And so like that music is playing while I'm driving around, and I was thinking like, oh, Johnny O. And I was like having kind of a cute moment in my inner monologue of like, yeah, I can't believe I've never driven around listening to Vertigo before. This is great. Okay. So yeah, I fucking, I love Vertigo. Yeah. That's, I'm just going to ruin the surprise movie victory all the way. Yeah, I know we've, we've I feel like when we talked about our favorite films, I feel like this is definitely one one for me that's up there. Um, way up there. I mean, we've even talked how I prefer it to Citizen Kane. Yeah. I mean, I can yeah. get into the mood of Vertigo way more often. I think to me it's just like Kane's I can rewatch Vertigo is not like more. the best Wells movie, so I don't like keep I won't keep going back to it to like compare Vertigo to yeah because you sent me that's why when you sent me that comparison I'm just like I'm not really comparing those two films that much oh yeah, yeah. they're not comparable movies yeah but you know what I mean yeah the AFI thing right or whatever no, it is sure. they, they always switch but for me it's just but like, for yeah. me I can guarantee I will continue to watch for rewatch Vertigo multiple times throughout my life. I cannot say the same for many other quote-unquote classics, you know. Uh, Vertigo just has a mood, and I mean, the Bernard Herrmann score is part of that. It's like, I just love it. I love the mood of that movie. Uh, might be a cloud star, like on Mo- like Mario. Might be a cloud star. <laughs> I, I don't know if you... You probably have, but I mean, I got the blu-ray that was restored that i thought looked great which is probably like my uh renaissance for the film was when i rewatched it a few years ago in a restored version mm. because uh the color 
doesn't really pop in those older versions and all those red yeah. all that deep red is really cool now you can get like because he does the whole like backdrop thing a lot which can be kind of annoying mm -hmm. on an earlier version but it does look a little bit a little bit better um, which is probably mm -hmm. one of the few things that can kind of date uh hitchcock in general is that he, he's a big fan of those uh backdrops to show like camera like cars moving and stuff and busy yeah. streets he does that a lot um Right. But uh, um, but yeah, okay, all right, well, good. I was like, I feel yeah. like we've been holding off on some of our favorite films, but um, mm -hmm. when I watched that short essay about, about how this is a remake of it, I'm like, ah, there's not a better reason right. to jump into Vertigo. It's kind of like uh, there's that Japanese director that was obsessed with Citizen Kane, and then he made mm -hmm. uh, Tokyo Story. Um, was like right around the same time or maybe it was after he made Tokyo Story. He was obsessed with Ozu. Ozu was obsessed with Kane and that's what got him to stop um, doing the propaganda films for Japan and mm. and so uh, yeah, Ozu was a big and so I was like it's kind of um, the same like oh you see him like because they were both super obsessed like just reportedly watching it over and over again. Um, like Chris right. Marker did apparently. Chris Marker with Vertigo. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So that's why I was like, oh, these are kind of spiritual, even though they're completely different films. Um, yes. Um, I want to put forth, so we're about to end season six. We only have two more episodes, including Vertigo, I think. Uh, maybe two episodes after Vertigo. Anyway, I wanted to propose maybe that we start to segue into, we've never actually done a theme for every episode of a season. We kind of have a vague theme and then certain certain episodes go off to, off theme. Uh, so I want to propose that for season seven, we do a theme that we have talked about many from the beginning, which is couples arguing. Okay. I think we should, for all of season seven, I mean, there's we can easily get ten movies out of that. And I think we should, I think we should do it. All right. I'm, I'm fine. Not that Vert Vertigo is not one of those. Sure. I mean, there is there is an argument, but it's not the whole movie, you know. Have you seen certainly Shortcuts, that Robert Altman movie? Have we talked about that before? Yeah, not my favorite that, of his. That's got a great couple arguing, arguing scene in it. Um, anyway. Yeah. I'd like it if it was, like, the core of the movie. Like, you know, we've talked about Eyes Wide Shut. I've brought up Certified Copy. There's a bunch of stuff, you know. It actually doesn't even have to be arguing. Well, I guess Before Midnight is a great one. Couples arguing. I'd love to do that. That one doesn't get enough attention. People love the first two, but I think the third one is so great. But yeah, if you're done with that, I would love to like lock in a theme and just like stick to it for once. Sure, we could do that. And then season eight, we don't have to do that anymore. But I think we should try it. I think this theme is specific enough to be like kind of exciting to um, be curious what what you pick what we what we pick for um, for these episodes. Um, yeah, I guess there's definitely classic ones, and then there's other ones that are kind of uh, tangential. Um, I guess we shouldn't spend a bunch of time talking about them now. We'll have time to think about them. Right. Um, right. But we also finally get to do Eyes Wide Shut, which we talk about all the time. I know. I was thinking that obviously i was just like oh i guess it, that was part of my reason for like wanting to do vertigo i was like there's nothing wrong with just let's just do one of our favorite movies and yeah we'll get to do eyes wide shut right. which maybe should be the first or the last uh, it doesn't really matter i guess it could go anywhere right okay okay all, all right. right that's movie victory 
It's over. Jete, movie victory. We're done. Yeah. Over. <laughs>